and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Monsters. I'm Mike. I'm Allison. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about things pertaining to werewolfery. Yeah, everything werewolf. This is going to be another two-parter with part one today and part two coming out tomorrow. As usual, we're assuming you've already seen these films, and so there will be spoilers. And we'll also be jumping around a bit. So without further ado, let's get into it. Funny enough, The Wolfman was not the first werewolf movie made by Universal. There was another film that came out earlier in 1935 starring Henry Hull, and it was called Werewolf of London. Now in this film, it's kind of similar to The Wolfman. Um, we have aristocratic family. Um, in this case, it's a doctor who's gone on some sort of expedition. And while he was away, he's a botanist. And while he's away, he gets attacked by a werewolf. And coincidentally, it happens while he's trying to find the moon flower, the flower that only blooms when there's a full moon. So there's obviously a connection there between and what he's searching for is a scientist and then the fact that he also gets attacked. It turns out there's like two werewolves like when um when Dr. <laughs> Glendon goes to the Himalayas or wh wherever he goes to get the flower. First of all, he only he wants the flower because like it's just special like it's for his botany research, but then later he finds out that it's like a cure for werewolfism but like temporary. Like it only buys you like a night or something. And then it turns out that the werewolf that attacked him comes to him in his human form and the two of them are like in rivalry to get this flower because you know it grows really rarely so they're like fighting over it and they both want to use it to like put off being a werewolf for another night. We, we always like to zoom in on something about a film that is you know it just raises eyebrows or is kind of goofy or you know maybe just you know some lines in the dialogue that just make you shake your head, or, or even something with the special effects. So for instance, in this movie, uh, the famous Jack Pierce, who did all of the makeup for, of all of the monsters, the classic monsters, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, he had a, a, a design for Henry Hull that was actually very similar to what he wound up coming up with for Lon Chaney Jr. to be the Wolfman. Um, and Henry Hull rejected it because he was somewhat of, he was an actor, but he's somewhat of a makeup artist himself. He decided that he was going to design his own makeup to, you know, to be the Wolfman. And it turns out that it's a very mild makeup. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost more like a Mr. Hyde. He has fangs that go upward and he has some extra facial. He has a widow's peak. He gets pointy ears. Um, can you remember anything else, G? Like what the? Um, I don't know. I can't remember his face too well. Yeah, he doesn't have as much hair. His hair is mostly around the sides of his like face, and he has like pointy ears. I think the fangs is just like the main thing. And but I, the thing I always remember is like the way he acts. Like the Wolfman, he acts more like an animal. Whereas Werewolf of London, I always felt like he kind of acts like he still kills people, but. He acts more human, and, and he, he can talk. yeah, he can talk even when he's in his wolf form, and like he wears clothes and stuff, like not like the shredded up clothes, you know, but like he wears like a regular outfit. He can go out, he can b still kind of be himself, I guess. It's more ambiguous. Yeah, I, I still think yeah, the closest monster I can think of that he's like is Mr. Hyde. He definitely has total recall of what he's done. Um, he remembers you know, just changing and then desiring to, you know, murder or, or you know, kill. Uh, 
And the next day he just says to himself, I don't know why I felt that way. That was crazy. Like I shouldn't have done that, which is very much like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And also Lon Chaney Jr. has the same problem. But like you said, when he's the wolf man, he, he's more like an animal. Like he doesn't have the ability to speak. Um, he growls like a dog and he's, he's less in control of himself. But he always says later on that he remembers what he did. And he remembers that, you know, he, he feels bad about it because he says, you know, I, I knew I was a wolf and I wanted to kill. Yeah, you know? he always says that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's something that they both have in common. But like, like Allison said, it's, it's when, um, when it's Henry Hull, he's a little bit more human about it. So that is, that's definitely a distinction between the two of them. Another thing about this film that's uh, a little different from The Wolfman is that uh, he's an aristocrat, but he seems to be more um, powerful in some way. Uh, he seems to have more influence in the town. Uh, he's, people tend to walk on eggshells when they're around him. Yeah, he reminds me more of, like, how Dr. Frankenstein's, like, an, a baron, like, in his movie, and the type of parties he throws and stuff. Especially Henry Frankenstein's dad. Yeah. You know, like, because he's definitely, <laughs> like, you know, he's running that town, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's a, a Dr. Glendon, who's Henry Hull's character in Where of London. Uh, he's married to a much younger woman, and she's, you know, she's barely out of her teens, uh, Valerie Hobson, who's the same actress, plays Elizabeth Frankenstein in The Bride of Frankenstein. And it was made the same year, actually. And, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, she was 17, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she wasn't she was even 17. an adult. She was actually still a minor. <laughs> um, and there seems to be a difference between them that they come from different classes. She seems to have been more of a middle class. There's another character who comes in that's like her teenage boyfriend or her boyfriend from the past. And they're closer in age. Henry Hull is much older than she is. And so uh, she winds up, you know, rekindling her friendship with her childhood friend. And they talk about some of the things that they did when they were younger. And it, it doesn't sound like, you know, they were aristocrats. Like, it's it's sort of alluded to the fact Oh, that yeah. Like, he says something about, like, oh, you, you used to like to, like... I can't remember what he says, like, like stealer. It wasn't stealing, but it was, like, something like they were, like, being, like, naughty teenagers or whatever right, right. <laughs> they probably were maybe like in downtown abbey like maybe they were the help maybe you know because that's kind of a common thing that um kids of the butlers and the maids grow up you know in the shadows of the the elites you know the aristocrats the nobles the ones who own the estate and you know they they become familiar enough with the customs and they know how to act but they're not really of that class. It's, it's very similar to Bram Stoker's book, Dracula, the difference between Lucy and Mina, uh, because Lucy is definitely an aristocrat and Mina isn't. And there's, there's a, it's suggested in there that Mina's family actually at one time worked for Lucy's family. Oh, I didn't know that. And even though the two girls are roughly around the same age and they're best friends, they're def definitely like Mina's of a lower class. That's the same as, um, that Princess and the Frog movie we were watching, how the two girls are like best friends, but the, you know, the, the black girl's mom used to like make dresses for the white girl right, like yeah, when that, she was little. Exactly. That's a real <laughs> common, uh, you know, theme that, that runs in a lot of these stories um, because, you know, they have to have the, the tension that comes with the fact that they're from different backgrounds and they have 
a different social status. And so Dr. Glendon has this reputation that he has to uphold. And um, uh, Warner Oland is the actor who plays his rival as the other werewolf, who is very Asian-looking. As a matter of fact, he's the actor who played in most of the Charlie Chan movies. And, um, and he actually was Swedish in real life. He wasn't even... He wasn't even Chinese or Korean or Japanese. And in this movie, his name is... Um, Yogami. Uh, Yogami, yeah, yeah. Dr. Yogami. And um, there's, a, there's a female character in this movie who keeps on mispronouncing his name and calling him Yokohama. Yeah, because she's drunk all the time, <laughs> which is another theme. I wanted to take a moment and say how James Whale, the director of the original Frankenstein, really brought to uh, these universal monster films this uh, attention to... The differences in social status, the class, how the classes were different, and um, and it's funny because the first film, Dracula, directed by Todd Browning, he actually does the opposite. And like I just said a second ago, in Bram Stoker's book, there is a lot of mention of the classes and how, they, like Quincy, who's American, is is much different uh, because he's American, and he's sort of described as a cowboy sort of action-packed character. <laughs> and Mina, of course, Mina and Harker are more, you know, they're of a, they're of a I wouldn't say a lower class, but they're... They, aren't they supposed to be middle class? They're middle class. Like he's a, um, he's, a he's not a lawyer, he's a he's, real estate agent or yeah, whatever but he he's, is. He's definitely getting himself into law and, and she's a teacher. Oh, she's a teacher? Yeah. I didn't even know she had a job. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, you said she was enlightened. Yeah, she represents, you know, an enlightened thinker, which is actually, a, there's a whole subject about uh, the, the new woman movement of the 1890s and that Stoker was actually quite ahead of his time by creating Mina to be a character to reflect the progressive movement and women, you know, the suffragette movement and women trying to get the right to vote. And it's funny how Todd Browning, when the film, when the book was made, you know, by Universal as Dracula, he actually downplayed the classes. He actually made it more like, instead of it being more like the differences in Europe between the classes, he made it more like set in America where there's less difference. So some of the characters who are supposed to be like, for instance, Lucy's character in Dracula is less of an aristocrat in the Dracula movie. She's more of a, a just maybe an upper middle class, you know, girl, like slash young woman. And there doesn't seem to be much difference between Mina and Lucy in that film at all, as far as their social status. As a matter of fact, everyone seems to just be upper middle class. Yeah, and, they all go to the opera together. Right, and just and that, everything. the fact that they're sitting in the box seats yeah. all together, that wouldn't be the case in Europe because only the, the, the aristocrats could sit in certain spots and then in the, the main floor was usually set aside for the, the working class, you know, Every, yeah. everyone knew their place. And everyone's yeah. always like, whose house is that? that? Is that Harker and Mina's house that they're in? Because everyone, or is it Seward's house? Maybe it's Seward's, Because yeah. every, everyone just like comes and goes through that house, like, um, so yeah, it makes it seem like everyone's just kind of like one big family or something. Yeah. But they're definitely, they're not lower class or even working class. They're definitely like upper middle class. They're yeah. sort of like the American bourgeois. Well, the, the lower class person in the movie is Martin, who has like the Cockney accent and That's everything. That's right, of course. And he has to have the Cockney accent because yeah. he represents that lower and working he, class. Yeah, he's, you always see him in uniform and he's right. just like the worker, you know. Right. But Browning does a good job of not making the film about that or drawing attention to that. Like I said, if anything, he downplays, he does the opposite. Whereas James Whale, 
especially in The Bride of Frankenstein, really starts to insert these references to all the different social classes and and how, you know, how they're like almost stereotypes. How the yeah, way he makes depicted. fun of them. Yeah. And, um, and so when you get to Werewolf, and, Werewolf of London, although Whale didn't direct that film, uh, there's, it seems to me that at some point in the mid-30s, because of what Whale had done, all of the Universal Monster films, whether Whale was directing them or not, had to have this social commentary about classes. And Werewolf of London does not disappoint in that category. <laughs> I mean, it really, like you said earlier, the woman who, who keeps on calling Yogami Yokohama, she seems to be a, um, a, a an upper upper class woman who's trying to move up yet another step. Yeah, she's like a social climber or something. Yeah, yeah, but it stresses her out, so she's always drinking all the time. Yeah, it's weird because <laughs> there's this aunt, this rich aunt, who's definitely like she has... She's an aristocrat, you know. She has the the money, and and um, and everyone's trying to get on her good side, get in her good graces, you know, because they they either want her money or they just want that social status to rub off on them. Yeah. And I can't remember who the woman is, what her character's name is, but she's really funny, and you know, she's kind of pathetic in a way, you know, but but she adds like. Uh, you know, comic relief. Yeah, the comic relief. <laughs> yeah, she was, she she offers the comic relief in the film. Then there's another scene when Henry Hull um, knows he's going to be turned into a werewolf because the moon's going to be full. So he decides he's going to go into you know the uh, White Chapel part of town. Yeah, you know, the, and get the, a get a room like side, so he can just yeah. lie. He can just lock himself in there. Yeah, and he says you know like uh, don't let me out and all this other stuff. But then just in case he does get out, he's only going to be attacking people. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, I'm in the ghetto, so <laughs> right. whatever. <laughs> and these two old women who you know have rooms available to rent, they get into this little fight. You know, they're first of all they're drinking gin. You yeah, <laughs> and they're like they're also comic because like one of the ladies is like she's like she's wearing a veil and then she starts eating it by accident, like she's eating tripe. That's right. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that is such a bizarre scene. She's eating tripe, and then she just starts eating her veil that was covering her mouth. Yeah, and her friend is like. Because she's like, oh, this tripe is so tough. But her friend is like, that's your veil you're eating or something like that. So ultimately, Yogami keeps on showing up. Somehow he's able to get into Dr. Glendon's um, uh, laboratory and he keeps on stealing the... What's the name of that flower? The Mary Faisa. Mary Faisa, right. (laughs) (laughs) And he he always gets it and like gets all of the stuff out of it before Glendon can do anything. It's it you really feel sorry for Glendon. Yeah, it's very frustrating. (laughs) But I wanted to say go back to his makeup and and say something about the special effects of this film because that's one of the things I really loved as a kid was being the, the transformation scenes, you know, when you get to see Larry Talbot turned into the Wolfman. And in Werewolf of London, they didn't do, like I said, Jack Pierce didn't do the makeup and they didn't do the the stop motion, you know, where he the the actor just sits there and looks at the moon and then you see the the hair growing on his face. Instead, they use this technique where he walks behind these pillars. And the first time he's turning into a werewolf, he he walks behind and every time he emerges from the other side of the pillar, he looks a little bit more transformed. And he I think it's three times, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and what's cool about that is that 30 years later almost, I think it was maybe a little less than 30 years later, they they use that same 
technique, that same special effect in an episode of Twilight Zone. Yeah, the guys turn into the devil instead of um, right. Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. What was the name of that episode? The or, Howling Man. The Howling Man. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And where, where you see the guy who you know is, was locked up, and he just seems like he's just some normal dude with like a shaggy beard and stuff. And um, then he walks behind one pillar, and he's like clean cut. He's got more like the devil beard now, and then yeah, yeah, his beard turns into a little goatee, and he grows yeah. these horns, and yeah. I think he even gets like a cape with yeah, like yeah, a collar on like, it, yeah, you know, he gets and stuff. the big collar and stuff. But yeah, so so that's basically the. I mean, not basically. That's the way that Henry Hall turns into his werewolf. He he's he goes behind when he walks behind the first pillar. It's Henry Hall. He emerges from the first one. There's a little bit of hair, and he seems to like. He's almost sort of like uh, choking, like his something's happening, and then he goes behind the next pillar, and now he's got fangs, and then he goes behind the third one, and then he's finally like fully transformed werewolf, uh, which I, I really liked it. I don't like it as much as the you know the, the classic Wolfman transformation, but I do think it was clever the way they did it, uh, considering the fact that Henry Hull did his own makeup. Yeah, I don't know if that was his idea to um, make the transformation that way. But obviously they're just editing it together. You know, he walks behind a pillar and then they just cut the film. You know, it's probably three hours later when, you know, he, you know <laughs> and they just put it together. But yeah, um, it's cool. It's like simple but effective. Like, I'm sure any, like, today, any, like, middle school kid with, like, who's making their, like, first or second movie for school or whatever, they could, like, do this. And it's, like, really effective, you know? So it's a good trick to do. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, just to tie up Werewolf of London, the way that it ends is interesting because he's trying to attack his wife at this point because there's this subplot where he's not spending enough time with her and she's spending more and more time with her childhood friend. And of course, she's loyal and faithful to him. But he starts to, that's part of the werewolf. You almost get into the mind of Henry Hall. And when he becomes a werewolf, the first thing he thinks of is that she's cheating on him and and it you know it sort of drives him to want to kill her when it's you know in his mind that would be his justification for wanting to murder her even though it's all sort of like a paranoia that's just in his head yeah which i think all that ties back to the class thing because like when her like old boyfriend comes in the very beginning like, he's like, oh, you don't seem, like, as happy anymore. He's like, we used to, like, laugh and run around all the time. And he's like, now you never laugh anymore. So I take that to be like, oh, now she's, like, moved up in society. But it's, like, more, like, it's, like, a stiffer, like, society, you know. like. And then when she hangs out with him, she can be more, like, free and everything. So then it would make sense that her husband, who's, like, upper class, would think, like, oh, she's cheating when she's just trying to, like, you know, like trying to get away from the uppityness or whatever. And she, but she loves him, and 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 when her friend does say that, he, she kind of not scoffs, but she just says, "Well, no, but this is, you know, I love the guy, and this is the life I've chosen, and yeah, and w with it comes responsibility because we are, you know, we are sort of an, an we're an aristocratic tribe now, and and you know, <laughs> we don't get to have as much fun um, as the commoners because we have this reputation to uphold." Which is a perfect segue into the last thing I wanted to say about the film, which is in this movie he the, he doesn't have you don't have to have a silver bullet, and he the werewolf can be killed just you know is like any it's like he's just a human being. So he winds up getting shot by one of the inspectors because he's about to attack his wife, and they all rush in at the last minute, and he gets shot, and and now he knows he's dying, and he thanks the inspector. He says thanks for the bullet, <laughs> and but then the inspector feels it's important enough 
to make sure that since Dr. Glendon is an aristocrat, that his legacy is preserved. So he makes this little speech at the end and he says, in my report, I will say that Dr. Glendon was shot in the act of trying to defend his wife. Yeah. You know, or something like that. <laughs> and that's like the last line of the movie. And then yeah. it just ends. And yeah. it's like, so, okay, so basically what you're saying is even when an aristocrat is guilty of doing something like really bad, you guys are right there to cover it up and shred the documents yeah. and make sure that, like, no one ever knows. <laughs> and have, that, like, the correct yeah. story printed the next day, exactly, you know, and everything. Right. I was like, that's, that, is that the kind of, you know, <laughs> ending? Is that, you know, I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> I seem to have a problem with that. Um, well, yeah, compare it to the Wolfman ending. Right, which we're going to get to. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us five stars and a review. Thanks.